Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, History Teaches Us, Walter Rodney. As we move toward the end of the 20th century in our telling of the story of Africana philosophy, it becomes easier to plot personal connections between our own lives and the historical figures we are covering. The subject of this episode, Walter Rodney, held from Guyana, as does Chike's mother. In 1974, she left Guyana to study in North America, eventually ending up in Toronto, which would become Chike's birthplace and hometown. She would have been gone by the time that Rodney returned to Guyana in September of that year. He was returning after living and teaching in Tanzania, an important part of his life that we mentioned previously in our episode on Julius Nyerere. It was in Tanzania that his two youngest children were born. By May of 1974, his wife, Patricia, their eldest child, Shaka, and the two younger children were already in Guyana ahead of Rodney, who stayed longer in Tanzania and then spent some time in the United States. Thus, while Chike's mother never met Rodney himself, she knew his family and she distinctly remembers walking and talking with those younger children, Kanini and Asha. The example of these Guyanese children with African names stayed with her and she named her own daughter, Chike's younger sister, Asha. Like me and my twin brother, Glenn, Chike and his sister Asha are both scholars with PhDs. Rarer still, they are employed by the same institution, Dalhousie University in Halifax, with Asha in the English department and Chike in philosophy. The fact that their very names can be related to the example set by the Rodneys is but one hint at the power of the legacy we are exploring in this episode. Walter Rodney was born March 23, 1942, in Georgetown, the capital and largest city of what was then still the colony of British Guyana. Through academic achievement and scholarships, he managed to enter Queen's College, the colony's most elite secondary school, and he moved on from there to the University of the West Indies, usually called UWE for its initials, in Jamaica, where he attained a bachelor's degree in history. Among his professors in Jamaica, one of the most influential was Elsa Govea, herself also Guyanese. She was a path-breaking historian of slavery in the Caribbean and the first female full professor at the university. Rodney went on to pursue a PhD in history at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, which is part of the University of London, just like King's College London, one of the institutions that brings you this podcast. During this time, he married Patricia Henry, whom he first met back in Guyana. She had also come to England to study and work as a nurse. Their son, Shaka, was born on the very same day that Rodney was awarded his doctoral degree in 1966. Important to understanding Rodney's thought and trajectory is the role model provided by another intellectual from the Caribbean, C.L.R. James. Back in episode 91, we noted that James was in England from 1962 to 1965. In that year, he went back to Trinidad and ended up being placed under house arrest by his former mentee, Prime Minister Eric Williams. Rodney's time as a student in England was from 1963 to 1966, thus overlapping with that phase of James's life and work. This also means, by the way, that Rodney was there during the last bit of Claudia Jones's life. At least one biographer of Rodney's has treated Jones's leadership as part of the context for understanding his development into a leftist black activist. James's influence is more obvious, however, because Rodney participated in a study group organized and led by James and his wife, Selma. Looking back on it about a decade later, Rodney claimed that the study group afforded me the opportunity that I and a number of other people were seeking to acquire knowledge of Marxism, a more precise understanding of the Russian Revolution, 
and of historical formulation. Rodney's words here evoke two of the ways in which he followed in James's footsteps, his Marxism and the primacy of history in his thought and intellectual practice. A third aspect would be their Pan-Africanism. Like James, Rodney aimed to apply the tools of Marxism and historical analysis to the task of understanding and changing the various situations of people of African descent across the world. Here, it is worth placing Rodney in the context not just of other Caribbean intellectuals, but more specifically of Guyanese intellectuals, or even more specifically of Afro-Guyanese intellectuals, since we're not going to speak at this point of Guyanese intellectuals of other backgrounds. But we will say that there are two things about Guyana worth pointing out, for those who don't know. First, it is geographically in South America, but in many cultural and political respects it is understood and recognized as part of the Caribbean. Second, while most of the population is not white, those of African descent are not in the majority and do not even represent the largest group in the society. These would be those whose ancestors came to Guyana from India as indentured servants. We'll return to the topic of Guyana's racial demographics later on. For now, let us note two of the other prominent Afro-Guyanese intellectuals of the 20th century, George G.M. James, no known relation to C.L.R. James, and Ivan von Sertima. Like Rodney and C.L.R. James, both of these men are famous for their work as pan-Africanist historians, but the Marxism that was so important to Rodney and his Trinidadian mentor is not part of their approach. George James is best known for his 1954 book, Stolen Legacy, whose long and bold subtitle makes its relevance to this podcast obvious. The subtitle reads, The Greeks were not the authors of Greek philosophy, but the people of North Africa, commonly called the Egyptians. Van Sertima, meanwhile, is best known for a book published in 1976 whose title is comparably succinct, but in its own way just as bold, They Came Before Columbus, The African Presence in Ancient America. Both books have had wide-reaching influence, so much so that it is not hard to find people who believe, on the basis of these authorities, that the Greeks stole their philosophy from Africa, and that Africans traveled to the Americas and influenced Mesoamerican cultures long before the time of Columbus. While Van Sertima is the scholar most commonly associated with the claim about pre-Columbian visits by African travelers, there were others who suggested it before him, including W.E.B. Du Bois, in the first chapter of his 1924 book, The Gift of Black Folk. That said, we should also note that the claim is widely viewed as unsupported by the evidence among historians of the Americas before the arrival of Europeans. George James's characterization of the relationship between Greek thought and Egyptian thought has also been criticized as pseudo-historical. We ourselves speculated in episode 4 of this podcast about the possible intellectual influence of Egyptian thought on Thales, who was known as the earliest Greek philosopher. Still, speculation on such points and useful recognition of the many ways that ancient Greek authors displayed interest in Egyptian thought do not lead us to the radical conclusion that Greek philosophy as a whole was, in any meaningful sense, stolen from elsewhere. Rodney's approach to Pan-Africanist history can be considered to be in many respects more careful than these other influential Afro-Guyanese thinkers of the 20th century, which is not to say that his work was unambitious or conservative. Consider his dissertation, A History of the Upper Guinea Coast, 1545-1800, to which appeared under the same title as a book in 1970. In the preface to the book version, we learn that he aims, among other things, to paint a picture of the particular section of the West African coast that he chose to study as it was in the mid-16th century, while it was still free of profound European influence. This does not mean free of any European influence whatsoever. After all, it was in the 16th century that the transatlantic slave trade got underway. Still, the phrase indicates Rodney's goal of breaking colonialism's hold on historical knowledge. 
the area of the West African coast that he calls the Upper Guinea Coast stretches from the Gambia River, which runs through the present-day country of the Gambia, to Cape Mount in present-day Liberia. This means that, in addition to the two countries just mentioned, parts of Senegal, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea, and Sierra Leone are included as well. Remember that all of these countries are the results of borders drawn by colonizers, the French, the Portuguese, the British, and, in the case of Liberia, the American Colonization Society. The resulting problem, one that Rodney encountered in previous scholarship, was a failure to treat this geographically and historically distinct region as a unit. This despite the fact that, as he put it, to project colonial boundaries into the pre-colonial period lacks all justification. By taking the region and its history seriously, Rodney was making an effort to see Africa through indigenous rather than colonial lenses, that effort made all the more difficult by the necessity of relying on European sources of information. And though Rodney later looked back on the dissertation with a critical eye and said he would certainly not see it as a strong statement of Marxian scholarship by any means, it displays an impressive ambition of a distinctive third-world Marxist variety to balance recognition of two things. On the one hand, the uniquely disruptive and dehumanizing character of European imperialism. On the other, the fact that there were already pernicious class hierarchies in pre-colonial African societies. Early in the book, he directly attacks the assumption that these traditional societies were uniformly or even largely egalitarian, writing, the prevalent communal image of African society may serve to obscure the decisive differences between the masses and the nobility. These decisive differences become especially important to the story Rodney is telling once his account reaches the beginning of the slave trade with Europeans. He identifies a definite pattern of class exploitation that saw ruling classes, that is, kings, chiefs, and nobles, often distorting and ignoring customary law in order to multiply pretexts for convicting commoners of crimes, which justified selling them to Europeans. Nobles who managed to end up captives in the trade could also, unlike commoners, more reasonably hope to be ransomed or in some other way recover their freedom. Rodney sums up the point as follows. The Atlantic slave trade was deliberately selective in its impact on the society of the Upper Guinea coast, with the ruling class protecting itself while helping the Europeans to exploit the common people. Right after making this historical claim, Rodney points out that the pattern of elites protecting themselves while delivering the masses into exploitative European hands remains a reasonable description of the condition of neocolonialism. This point exemplifies his commitment to investigating the past in a way that illuminates the present. Clearly, he is inviting harshly critical judgments of the African ruling elites in both the pre-colonial past and the post-independence present. Yet he quickly reframes the point to make sure that Europeans are not let off the hook. Just as we call the post-independence situation in many African countries neo-colonial, we'd be justified calling the period of the slave trade proto-colonial. He offers this explanation of the power dynamic at work. Though on the one hand there was no semblance of European political control over the African rulers, on the other, it was the Europeans who were accumulating capital. This simple but significant contrast reminds the reader that acknowledging hierarchy and exploitation among Africans should never mean obscuring the European stimulation of the trade, the eventual scramble to carve up Africa, and the continued involvement in African affairs after the apparent end of colonialism. Rodney moved to Tanzania from England in 1966. He would have been interested in going to West Africa, since that was the subject of his research, but nothing there seemed a good fit. He wrote to Terence Ranger, the British historian who was then head of the history department at the University of Dar es Salaam, and got a favorable response. 
This letter to Ranger was clear, however, about the fact that Rodney planned to occupy a position at the university only temporarily, as he already felt committed to returning to UWE, the University of West Indies in Jamaica, which we mentioned before. He later explained his mindset by saying that his decision to go to Africa was always in his mind a means to an end rather than an end in itself. I was returning to the Caribbean by way of Africa. His model of Pan-Africanist struggle involved learning what he could during his time in Africa, and then ultimately going home to the Caribbean to use that knowledge. This is what he seemed to be doing when he left Tanzania for Jamaica in early 1968. What he did not know is that he would be back in Tanzania the very next year. The year 1968 stands out as perhaps the most tumultuous year in a famously tumultuous decade. One of the year's many noteworthy tumults happened in October in Kingston, Jamaica, and this particular period of unrest is known as the Rodney Riots. To understand why he has the odd distinction of a set of riots being named after him, we must first see how Rodney's return to Jamaica allowed him to emerge as a kind of public intellectual and a uniquely accessible one at that. Rodney made himself available, first of all, by giving a number of public lectures, the most well-known of which were a pair of speeches delivered at the UE Student Union in which he attempted to clarify the nature of the movement of the moment, namely black power. Perhaps even more important to the story of the riots than Rodney's public lectures, though, was his engagement with people outside academic structures. Most famously, Rodney began to connect regularly with adherents of Rastafari, that unique religious creation of the Caribbean that we discussed in detail a few episodes ago. We pointed out that Rastas in the 1960s were subject to persecution and repression as a result of their challenge to Jamaica's status quo. The revolutionary potential of a link between this set of troublemakers and a prominent Marxist intellectual produced such a reaction of fear in the Jamaican government that Rodney was banned from the country, a decision that led directly to the riots. From a philosophical perspective, the lasting legacy of this time is undoubtedly The Groundings with My Brothers, an influential collection of speeches and writings by Rodney published in 1969 by Bogle Le Publications, which was a press created in England as part of protests against Jamaica's ban on Rodney. Let's look first at the book's second and third chapters, which print the aforementioned speeches on black power. The two talks complement one another, as the aim of the first is to provide a basic understanding of black power as a doctrine, movement, and goal, paying attention to the context in which it first emerged the United States. The second is about black power's relevance to the West Indies. It thus elaborates on the ideal so as to emphasize the demands it makes on Caribbean societies in particular. Near the beginning of the first speech, we find a noteworthy overlap in his way of thinking about race with the subject of our last episode, Steve Biko. Like Biko, Rodney treats black as synonymous with non-white. The definition which is most widely used the world over is that once you are not obviously white, then you are black and are excluded from power. Power is kept pure, milky white. The claim that the division of all the world's people into the two categories, black and white, is most widely used is likely to surprise many of us. Rodney himself implicitly recognizes that it is not obviously the common sense notion of race in the Caribbean by commenting on the socioeconomic positioning of various groups generally understood as neither black nor white in the second speech. Rodney clearly understands racial distinctions to be socially constructed in a way that is tied to power relations. He claims in both speeches that it is the white world that has defined who counts as white. He treats racialism as something born in the context of slavery in the West Indies and the American South that gradually became a worldwide phenomenon. The question arises whether race has become less of a concrete reality and more of a convenient political metaphor, 
when Rodney reports a comment by Stokely Carmichael, according to which Fidel Castro counts as one of the blackest men in the Americas. Rodney agrees, and claims that it similarly makes sense to say that the leaders of Caribbean countries, where Carmichael had been declared persona non grata, qualify as white. Note the irony that this implies the whiteness of Eric Williams, despite Rodney's explicit and positive reference to Williams earlier in the same speech. But of course, at that point, he was discussing Williams not as a political finger, but as the insightful author of the book Capitalism and Slavery. Rodney articulates the point of black power in a way that brings to mind what Franz Fanon called the fatal blow in Jean-Paul Sartre's description of negritude as dedicated to its own destruction, which we discussed in episode 105. Defending black power against the charge of being racially intolerant, Rodney says, it is the hope of the black man that he should have power over his own destinies. This is not incompatible with a multiracial society where each individual counts equally. So far, so good. But Rodney goes on to remark that, the moment that power is equitably distributed among several ethnic groups, the very relevance of making the distinction between groups will be lost. This seems to imply that the moment the movement for black power attains its goal, there will no longer be any point in recognizing anyone as black. Rodney, at least at this point in 1968, views race relations in Cuba in the wake of the revolution as having progressed to the point where black Cubans can afford to forget the category black and think simply as Cuban citizens, as socialist equals, and as men. In these instances, Rodney seems eager for the disappearance of racial consciousness. But elsewhere, he champions the dimension of black power struggle in the Caribbean that involves, as he puts it, the cultural reconstruction of the society in the image of the blacks. He decries the common practice among Afro-Caribbean people of saying good hair to mean European hair, good complexion to mean a lighter complexion, and so on. This, he says, is why black power advocates find it necessary to assert that black is beautiful. We can relate this assertion to his final conclusion. It is time we started seeing through our own eyes. The road to black power here in the West Indies, and everywhere else, must begin with a revaluation of ourselves as blacks, and with a redefinition of the world from our own standpoint. This talk of whose eyes black people see through may naturally put us in mind of Du Bois, but note that Du Bois was clearly speaking of people of black African descent, and not other non-white peoples. Rodney, on the other hand, is explicit about referring to Indians as well as Africans in the paragraph containing his final conclusion, especially because he believes that conflict between Indians and Africans in Guyana and Trinidad is best explained by recognizing that both groups are held captive by the European way of seeing things. We might wonder how much difference this introduces between Du Bois's point and Rodney's, and might also ask whether African people seeking to overcome ideas of good hair and good complexion necessarily face a different challenge than Indian people seeking to be free of European beauty standards, given the differences in physical features associated with their different places of ancestry. Beyond the Black Power speeches, other parts of The Groundings with My Brothers deal with African history and the need to take it seriously. It was in this context that Rodney could most safely be counted on to support the idea that African people should recognize themselves as distinct and special among the peoples of the world. The book's fourth chapter, African History and Culture, collects a series of short pieces that Rodney wrote for a magazine called Our Own. He offers this pan-Africanist explanation of the importance of his topic. In order to know ourselves, we must learn about African history and culture. This is one of the most important steps towards creating unity among Africans at home and abroad. The title of the book's fifth chapter also makes its general thrust quite clear. It is titled, African History in the Service of Black Revolution. 
It was originally delivered orally, but not in Jamaica. Indeed, while the book is often thought of as a collection of speeches in Jamaica, three of its six chapters are made up of remarks that Rodney delivered in the country to which Chike's mother emigrated, Canada. Rodney presented African history in the service of Black Revolution at the Congress of Black Writers, held in Montreal from October 11th to 14th, 1968. David Austin has written about how the city of Montreal from late 1968 to early 1969 became a remarkable center of Black power. This was thanks to a pair of momentous events. One was the Congress, which featured C.L.R. James, Stokely Carmichael, Walter Rodney, and a number of other significant figures of the time. The second was the Sir George Williams Affair, a protest against racism led by West Indian students at what is today Concordia University. The protest included an occupation of a ninth-floor computer center that ended up in flames when riot police clashed with the students occupying it. A central figure in both the conference and the protest was Ruzi Douglas, who came to Canada from Dominica, the island home of Chike's father. Douglas was imprisoned for his involvement in the protest and subsequently deported back to Dominica. In 1975, he published Chains or Change, Focus on Dominica, which follows Rodney's example by reflecting on the meaning of black power in a particular Caribbean context. Douglas later became the prime minister of Dominica in 2000, although sadly, he died before that year was through. Nor should we neglect to mention the most prominent participant in the Congress, who was actually from Canada, Burnley Rocky Jones of Nova Scotia, sometimes spoken of as Canada's Stokely Carmichael. Canadian authorities saw such a threat in black power that when Rocky brought the original American Stokely and his wife, Miriam McCabe, to Halifax for a leisurely visit after the conference, they were constantly tracked and watched by the police. As for Rodney's participation in the Congress, alongside the paper on African history, he presented a Statement of the Jamaican Situation, which became the first chapter of Groundings. As we learn from David Austin, it was co-authored with Robert Hill. Then a student from Jamaica at the University of Toronto, Hill would go on to become a prominent historian, best known for his work on Marcus Garvey. The statement read at the conference criticizes the Jamaican government of the time as repressive and neo-colonial. As if eager to confirm this accusation, that very same government, led by Prime Minister Hugh Shearer, used the opportunity of Rodney's trip to Montreal to ban him. So, when Rodney arrived in Jamaica, he was denied entry and had to go back to Montreal. This is why the sixth, final, and titled chapter of The Groundings with My Brothers is a speech delivered in Montreal after the Congress. It begins with this report of Rodney's situation. The government of Jamaica, which is Garvey's homeland, has seen fit to ban me, a Guyanese, a black man, and an African. The government's action was not without consequences, for there was a protest by students which, as it traveled through Kingston, picked up non-student protesters and eventually ended up in a massive disturbance with much destruction and a few deaths. Thus the term Rodney riots. The late great Jamaican philosopher Charles Mills wrote about his experience of this momentous event as he was a student at UWE at the time. Rodney's remarks on his ban help us further to understand his view of the value of African cultural difference. He takes it to be a central problem of Jamaican history that the ruling class promotes the myth of Jamaica as a harmonious multiracial society rather than as a predominantly black society in which black people are the least advantaged. At key moments, though, black Jamaicans have revealed this myth to be a lie. Rodney's examples from the past are Paul Bogle during the Morant Bay Rebellion of 1865 and Marcus Garvey's UNIA. In what was for him the present day, Rastafari was the most important such example. In our episode on Rastafari, we quoted Rodney as calling this movement the leading force expressing black consciousness. On the same page, 
Rodney observes that this is precisely what terrifies the government. They are afraid of that tremendous historical experience of the degradation of the black man being brought to the fore. Rodney extols the cultural revolt embodied in Rastafari because of its clear political value. When African people seek to recover their African cultural heritage, this automatically demonstrates the oppressive character of the system that made recovery necessary in the first place. It was important to Rodney, however, that university-trained intellectuals, like himself, should appreciate not just the political value of Rastafari's departure from European frameworks, but also its intellectual value. This is conveyed by the title, Groundings with My Brothers. He is referring firstly to the Rastafari practice of reasoning, and then more broadly to all the time he spent talking and listening with those outside an academic setting. It was his hope to contribute something of use in such situations, but he also entered them humbly, expecting to gain from what he heard. His engagement with Rastas gave him a distinctly philosophical example of this learning. You have to speak to Jamaican Rasta and you have to listen to him, listen very carefully, and then you will hear him tell you about the word. And when you listen to him, you can go back and read Muntu, an academic text, and read about Nomo, an African concept for word, and you say, goodness, the Rastas know this. They know this before Janheim's Jan. Rodney refers here to a book by a German scholar of African literature that drew heavily on the ethno-philosophical school in African philosophy. Rodney suggests that university-educated intellectuals who have been taught to accept that which is European as authoritative need to be open as an alternative to listening for the echoes of Africa in Rastafari discourse. Soon enough, Rodney would quite literally go back to Africa, returning to Tanzania in 1969 after some time in London and Cuba. As we've noted earlier, he stayed in Tanzania until 1974. Rodney once commented of his initial arrival in the country years prior that he felt he had been afforded the opportunity to grow in conjunction with the whole movement of a society. During his second longer stay, he again enjoyed this congenial sense of connection to a socialist society in action. Rupert Lewis, whose book, Walter Rodney's Intellectual and Political Thought is the most thorough overview of his life available, observes that the Caribbean's loss was Tanzania's gain as this was the most creative period of his life. As we noted before, it was during his second sojourn in Tanzania that he published his dissertation as a book, but greatly outweighing that work's impact on the public memory of Rodney is the other book he published during his time, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Generally held to be his magnum opus, it makes a systematic case for European exploitation as the best explanation for the relative poverty of Africa. It's among the classics of black radical thought, like Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, James's Black Jacobins, and Williams's Capitalism and Slavery. Those who are interested in Rodney as a philosophical thinker should pay attention to how Europe underdeveloped Africa, no doubt, but we would provocatively suggest that another book, Walter Rodney Speaks, is even more philosophically important. Though published after his death in 1990, its content dates back to 1975. We mentioned at the beginning that Rodney returned to Guyana from Tanzania the previous year, 1974. As we noted, he stayed longer in Tanzania than Patricia and his children, which should have allowed him to participate in the 6th Pan-African Congress in June, but he was unfortunately ill. He then spent much of July to September in Atlanta, Georgia, participating in a summer research symposium organized by the Institute of the Black World. After the success of that venture, the leadership of this unique African-American think tank, which operated between 1969 and 1983, brought Rodney back to the States to talk at length about his life and thought. The conversation took place over a couple of days in the spring of 1975 at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. In Walter Rodney Speaks, which you have his remarks from those sessions. The format is ideal, 
allowing us to learn about Rodney's life from his own perspective while diverging regularly into thoughtful considerations of other topics. Rodney was by this point very well-traveled, and some of the most fascinating insights in Walter Rodney Speaks involve comparisons between different peoples of the Africana world. He comments, for example, on what we might call different levels of studiousness. In his experience, the African student is highest in his or her motivation, and then comes the Caribbean student, and then the Black American. At first, this might seem to be a bit of unhelpful stereotyping, but his explanation of the supposed observation is intriguing and may help to alleviate concerns that he's being unfair to African Americans. He says that the Black person in this society, meaning the United States, in many ways is the most advanced at a given level of perception. What the African American sees better than the others, Rodney thinks, is how much of a sham the whole system is. On the other hand, while he prizes this as an insight, he says it has the weakness that it fails to confront an old decaying order with a new mental and intellectual discipline with new habits of work. He also contextualizes his top ranking of continental Africans by relating it to their very different experiences of social and political spaces as compared with African Americans. Rodney puts it simply, you teach an African student in a university this year and next year he's in the Ministry of Finance as a permanent secretary. He's actually making policy. It was simply not possible for African Americans to have that kind of access to power. When Rodney made the decision to leave Tanzania in 1974, he had reason to think he'd be able to teach at the University of Guyana. His appointment to such a position was blocked, however, by members of the university's Board of Governors, loyal to Guyana's Prime Minister, Forbes Burnham. Rodney did not allow this literal disappointment to deter him from remaining in Guyana. This is why, as Rupert Lewis tells us when describing the last years of Rodney's life, Rodney had no job or regular income from 1974 to 1980 and had to do a lot of lecturing in North America and Germany in order to make ends meet. While he could not teach at the university, he could get involved in politics, and he did. This, of course, increased antagonism between himself and Burnham, a defining feature of these last years of his life. But the roots for that conflict were planted in the earlier part of his life. As Rodney says in Walter Rodney Speaks, his political consciousness as a man of the left was shaped long before his time with C.L.R. James in England. Rodney's parents, and especially his father, were involved in the formation of the People's Progressive Party, the PPP. It was an avowedly socialist party, and Rodney came to see this as formative. Linking himself with another prominent Afro-Guyanese thinker of his generation, the economist Clive Thomas, Rodney speculates that the example of the PPP as a mass party gave them an openness to socialism that may have been less common in other Caribbean countries. PPP was also a multiracial party, formed through an alliance between Burnham, who was Afro-Guyanese, and Chetty Jagun, who was Indo-Guyanese. Eventually, though, Burnham broke away to start the People's National Congress, the PNC, and soon the PPP was looking to Indians for its base, while the PNC garnered the African vote. By the time Rodney returned to Guyana, Burnham had been in power for the eight years during which Guyana had been independent, with widespread concerns about the fairness of the elections. Rodney was thus happy to join as a founding member of the Working People's Alliance, the WPA, an organization protesting against the racial division of Guyanese politics, against the repressive aspects of Burnham's government, and for a socialist path. Rodney's work with the WPA shaped his thought, as presented in his final major work as a historian, A History of the Guyanese Working People, 1881-1905, finished just before his death. The book displays a focus on class, which of course is in keeping with his Marxist leanings, but without ignoring race. 
No doubt there was more to come from this prodigious historian, philosopher, and activist, but Rodney's story ended in tragedy on June 13, 1980. A walkie-talkie given to his brother, Donald, turned out to be a bomb that exploded, killing Rodney and injuring his brother. The explosion is widely understood as an assassination on Burnham's behalf. So, Rodney joins the grim roll call of Africana thinkers we've covered in the past few episodes, whose political battles led to victimization by real violence. Bob Marley's house attacked by gunmen, Fela Kuti's compound assaulted by the Nigerian government, Biko and Rodney assassinated. In episodes to come, the unifying theme will be something more pleasant to consider, namely the increasing prominence of Black women's voices and the development of a vibrant new Black feminism in the 1970s and the following decades of the 20th century. As Rodney argued, history has much to teach us, and we invite you to join another exciting session on Black feminist thought here on the History of Africana Philosophy. <laughs>